Hi, welcome to our Private Capital Perspectives podcast series, where we have conversations with industry leaders across the private capital space. My name's Alex Last. I am co-head of the Global Funds team at Morant. We're lucky to be joined by Mr. Richard Perris. Hello. Hi, Richard. Richard was most recently general counsel of CVC in London and in New York. That's right. Hi, Richard. Alex, thanks so much for having me on this. It's been a real treat to get to catch up with some old friends and colleagues, have some really interesting conversations, actually. I think people really enjoy listening to them. It's really brought out for me what high quality people we all get to work with, uh, the lawyers that are working in private markets. Fantastic. I think that's the point we're most excited about is getting behind the technical and legal aspects of the industry and hearing a bit about the, the characters that are involved in it. So super excited to get started. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the person we're speaking to today? So the first conversation we're going to hear is my conversation with Ranesh Ramanathan. Uh, Ranesh is a partner in the uh, Boston office of Kirkland and Ellis. Uh, he's focused on debt and distressed credit and special situations in particular. Uh, he has spent most of his career in-house though, as most recently as general counsel of Bain Capital Credit, which is how I first came across him. He's one of those lawyers that's gone against the tide and, and moved from in-house back to private practice. So he had some really interesting perspectives on that. He also has a very interesting life outside of law. He's an active leader in movements for immigrant justice and LGBTQ rights. And uh, most interestingly of all, uh, his husband, Eric Ramanathan, uh, when we spoke, had just been announced that he was going to be the US ambassador to Sweden, no less. So that meant that Ranesh, when we spoke back in February, was getting ready to move with his family to the residence in Stockholm and commute back as necessary to do his job in Boston. So that was where we started our conversation. Fantastic stuff. Okay, here we go. I'm here with Vinesh from Manathan. Vinesh, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. Richard. How good are you stuff? doing? I'm, I'm all right, thanks. I'm all right. So you are located in Boston, Massachusetts right now, yes? At Kirkland's offices with a lovely view uh, over the Charles River, I see physically located in Boston right now. However, I do understand, and I've got to start with this because it's so exciting. I do understand that's not your familial base at this point. Is that correct? That is correct. <laughs> that okay, is tell correct. me about that. Tell me about that. So the family, the family home now is in Stockholm, Sweden. We just moved there a week ago. And, you know, I know your next question, so I'm going to answer it now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're in Stockholm because uh, my husband is now the U.S. ambassador to Sweden. That uh, is so awesome. Uh, congratulations to Eric. You must be pretty proud of him there. That's, that's a big deal, right? As I say to everyone, it's a great deal for him. I'm going to be spending a lot of time on planes. So I've got frequent flyer miles coming, so that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, that's a good thing. That's a good thing with Swedish Air. Or what is the national carrier in Sweden? I don't even know what it is. <laughs> there is no national carrier, actually. Is that right? Yeah, so Scandinavian Airlines is meant to cover the whole region. Yeah. But actually, the, the best flights are in Finnair. I There's did not know that. The no national carrier for Sweden. Anyway, so Eric's the ambassador. And this is obviously about you, though. So you're going to be shuttling back and forth and, I guess, working from Stockholm rather than working from home, right? Well, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it, it, it's gonna to be working from Stockholm yeah. as well as working from Boston and London yeah. and New York. Yeah. Legally speaking, how does that work? <laughs> I, you mean you expect me to comply with the law? So the, one, the, the interesting thing, the interesting fact that most people probably maybe know is that the U.S. Embassy and the Chief of Mission Residence, which is the ambassador's home in any country, is actually U.S. property. It's U.S. soil. And so whenever you're on that property, you're 
in the US. And so I can practice law in the residence in Stockholm, but I cannot from the front uh, walkway, just so we're clear. But presumably, if you did do it, you have diplomatic immunity. <laughs> Not about to test that. <laughs> Let's be clear. Oh, Not come about on. To if, you, if you get diplomatic, I mean, I couldn't resist that. I, I'd have to go and like, I don't know, at least a parking ticket or something. Because <laughs> you technically do, right? You, See, you... Ag agreed. Now you're speaking like a true New Yorker. Yeah, exactly. With, with all the diplomats and their, their parking tickets that are go unpaid. If you told me five years ago, hey, I'm going to go, you know, my husband's, you know, now the ambassador to Sweden, and I'm going to like shell back and forth. I'm going to work from Stockholm most of the time. I'm going to be back in Boston sometimes. I would have said probably, Rinesh, you're nuts. Have you not thought this through? This isn't going to work. What are your clients going to say? You know, all of this stuff. Whereas you tell me now, and I'm sitting here, you know, we're not physically in the same location and everyone's very used to that. Am I right about that? Do you think it, this has sort of happened naturally? And did you get any pushback from either colleagues or clients about this idea? Or was it all just, we all do it by Zoom now, so it doesn't matter? I think that's the one big thing that COVID has done for the work environment. And, yeah. and again, we are, we are the privileged few, right? In the legal profession, in the investment profession, in banking by and large, you can do it anywhere in the world. You don't have to physically be present in any particular location. So agreed, I think if this conversation had happened three years ago, it would have been a very different conversation around, okay, so how's this gonna work? But given where we are today, and given the fact that we've proven that we are actually probably more efficient working from home or working from wherever we're most comfortable, this has been a non-issue. The most interesting question I get from clients actually is, so how will I know what time zone you're on? And my response is, when has it ever mattered? Like, <laughs> I'm at your beck and call 24-7, so just call me. Yeah, it might actually help. I mean, you know, in some circumstances, you know, those late night, you know, West Coast calls will be mid-morning for you now, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's taken the pandemic for everyone to realize we can do those things from anywhere, right? But let me, let me push back a little bit on that, right? Because I agree that I think we can work from anywhere, but are we training our fellow lawyers properly if we're all remote? Right. right. You remember what it was like. Oh, maybe you don't because I'm beginning to forget what it was like to be a first year associate when you, <laughs> you literally know nothing. Right? I never really qualified as a lawyer, so I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll ignore that part of you as Yeah, we'll put it's a okay. pin in that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but you remember the first day you started as a, as a lawyer. It sure. You didn't know anything, right? You didn't know how to do anything. And the ability to sit in a partner's office on a conference call to go through a markup in person and walk through changes is incredibly valuable. And is that the reason you'll come back to Boston at all? To actually be with your team and work with them? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I also yeah. believe that a lot of client development, right? Like really bonding with your clients doesn't occur on Zoom. You gotta do yeah. it in person. So let's talk about clients. Okay. Because uh, you, had, you had 15 years where you were the client, right? You're an in-house sort of original gangster in some ways. You know, you joined Bain with Sean Doherty. Were you guys the first lawyers at Bain or? Sean was the first lawyer and then two years later I joined him. Yeah, up to 2018, you were very used to being an in-houser. And there's plenty of stuff out there about, you know, people transitioning from private practice to in-house and that's discussed a lot. So what I wanna discuss is like the opposite transition and how that goes. You know, going from in-house for 15 years back to private practice, a general counsel, is a generalist, 
I think Sean used to say, actually, general counsel can't be specific counsel, yeah, which was wow. a nice line. Wow, yeah, got, a, <laughs> that's, that's a good memory, by the way. Yeah, that yeah, is absolutely no, I, one I, of his lines. Yeah, absolutely. And he was right. You are a generalist. So when you say, okay, I'm making the decision that now the next chapter is private practice, how do you build your practice and your personal brand again in one very specific area, which is now certainly in big law, what people have to do? And so how did you gravitate towards where you are? Let me answer that in two ways, right? One, one, I think the practice of law at law firms has become too specialized. And we have too many people who literally do one thing. They do it very, very well. They do it very, very efficiently because they know the insides and outs of that one thing. And the piece that's missing is the person who's going to think outside the box, who's going to be like, great, you want to do a term loan to company X, but have you looked at what happens when company X files for bankruptcy? What are the bankruptcy implications of this? Have you looked at what happens when they do multiple rounds of equity raises? What's the use of proceeds? Have you looked at what the operations of the business are like and what your risks are from the operations of the business and are there cyclicalities to that? And so I think the need to be a specialist has swung too far in one direction. When I started out as a lawyer, right, I started at, at Cleary Gottlieb in, in New York, and the general philosophy at that time at Cleary was we should all be generalists. You should do a little bit of lots of things and then do a lot of one thing so that, yes, you have to specialize in one thing, but you want to touch a whole variety of other things just so you can issue spot. Right? You're not going to be the expert in those areas, but yeah. you want to be able to issue spot, hey, this might have an a antitrust issue. This might be a litigation risk. I should bring in a litigator. I should bring in an attention specialist. And that's one of the things I think I really bring to the forefront here is that ability to think about issues across the spectrum right? and to think outside the box, which is also part of the reason why I'm in special sits. I was going to come on to that. I think let's get to special sits in a second. But so th this sort of idea of being a more of a generalist within a private practice firm do people perceive you as kind of like painting outside your own lines a little bit there? Or, or are you sort of saying, okay, my practice is to advise on all these different things? Or are you saying my job is actually to pull in the people who can advise on these different things that I'm spotting? I have one core practice area, right, which is effectively distress lending. It's lending to companies in trouble. But because of my generalist bent, I feel like I can spot some of these issues early and then bring in the right specialist. I'm never going to pretend to be a litigator. I'm never going to do that. And that's, that's, a, that's malpractice, to be blunt. I'm never really going to pretend to be a M&A lawyer, especially a public M&A lawyer. Not going to be a capital markets lawyer, right? We've got specialists who are the best at what they do in each of these areas. And the value I can bring to my clients is tapping those people and bringing them in on their deals early on so that they can issue spots, so they can deal with those issues early rather than, than figure them out later on. Do you think it's possible? Obviously, you've, you've got that through 15 years of in-house. You, you know. are, are you going to keep reminding me how old I am? <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> I actually don't know how old you are. And oh, I'm not sure where you are. So I, I'm not even going to have that discussion because, you know, I've got no hair. You've got no hair. <laughs> we were both in, I think we were both in-house for 15 years. I'm not sure prior to that. You know, you've got that experience. If, if someone's in private practice, do you think it's possible to even do that these days to get that kind of more general 
outlook if you spend your entire career in private practice? Or do you think that's something that could only really happen if you either go to a smaller firm or you go in-house? I think fundamentally, the best lawyers are the ones who have a little bit of a generalist in them. You do have yeah. to be a specialist in something because that's where your core expertise will come from. But my advice to junior lawyers is dabble. Try things outside of your comfort zone, right? I've got, as you can imagine, working at, at K&E, we've got a lot of private equity M&A associates. Sure. And so many of them are just focused on, I'm just going to do this kind of PE deal. I'm going to do mid-market PE deals. I'm going to be the best at that. And that's going to be my calling card. Yep. And my advice to them is that's a mistake. Let that be your expertise, but try a large cap deal. Work on a restructuring. The, the skill sets you're bringing in on a restructuring are corporate skill sets, mm -hmm. but know how restructuring works, right? Work on a funds deal. Work on a continuation fund, whether there are M&A angles to it, because then you're going to learn how funds operate and the issues that funds face. And all of that makes you a better lawyer. Be curious about the stuff you don't know, right? It's far easier in-house. But I think... In-house as well, right? One of the, one of the mistakes in-house lawyers make is being floating a little too high above things. I think there's a need for you to also dip down a little deeper. You can't dip deep into things just because you've got too much going on. But you do have to, I think, build, build a substantive expertise as well. Yeah, there's an opposite problem that there are the in-house counsel who really don't give legal advice at all and kind of <laughs> almost are afraid to do so, like express any opinion unless it's just regurgitating external counsel's specialist opinion, right? That's the opposite problem. I guess we all have to struggle for that balance these days, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So special situations is an interesting term. I've always found it very interesting ever since I sort of focused on credit. Like, because you always get these terms, right? There's like every fund is called, a, there's, there's certain words, it's a combination of like opportunities, situations, credit, debt, worldwide, global, all that stuff. You said that you focus more on the distress side. Is that all that you would say is encompassed with special situations or how do you kind of define it? You know, you see all these funds out there like, I don't know, Blackstone, TACOPS, would that be part of special situations for you? Or? So it's an interesting debate. And I think it's an interesting debate that we've all gone through. And I think a lot of our clients are going through right now of how do you define yourself? Because special sits as a asset class, right? It's just something that doesn't fit neatly within one of the other categories. It's not a senior secured loan. It's not a LBO. It's not a growth equity investment in general. It's mm -hmm. something that's different. One thing we've been talking about is whether we should actually call ourselves creative capital because that's what it really is. And I think if you look at the client base, that's the way they're looking at it too. It's about being capital that's a little different often where you want downside protection, but you want to capture some of the upside versus what a traditional secured lender would get where you're not getting any of the upside. I'm sure that would cause tension with the sort of ordinary situations crowd or the, the non-creative capital. Uh, 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 uh. Traditional capital. Tradi uh, tradi uh, there you go. There you go. Hey, you're, good. you're good at this. You should, you should do branding for a living. There's an interesting point that, I mean, wind the clock back to March 2020. Everyone was sort of preparing decks that said, the world's about to end. There's a huge sort of distressed opportunity just around the corner. All these companies are gonna have zero revenue. All these decks going out with like, you know, dislocation funds or whatever it is. That was the obvious story. 
So what happened, and that distressed opportunity didn't didn't materialize, is some of what you're talking about really just a reaction to that, that, you know, they just need deployment opportunities. I think you saw special situations blossom before 2020. And the real push into special situations is increasing yield in the low yield environment. Mm-hmm. Right. One of the tricky things right. is that credit investors did not expect our low yield environment to last for the 15 years that it has lasted. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that's been painful. Yeah. And so they're yeah. looking for ways in which you can increase your return while keeping to your fundamental investment thesis of downside protection. And so that's mm-hmm. that's where I think it sort of evolved. What happened in 2020 should have been a massive opportunity for creative capital. But the problem was governments flooded the market with money. And rightly so. In a situation like the pandemic posed, where it was indiscriminate on who was affected by the slowdowns, the shutdowns, the lock-ins, et cetera. It was important for governments to stabilize the economy overall. But I think one of the things we'll see coming out of that, and so yes, the opportunity set wasn't huge in that window. A lot of people raised a lot of money, sat by, waiting for that opportunity set, didn't really arise. There are industries where there was interesting deployment, right? Travel and leisure, retail, I think you saw logistics being a huge investment area for mm-hmm. because that, that growth was been, has been basically uncontrollable in the last two years. One of the things I think you're going to see in the next few years is companies being significantly over-levered because money was so easy to come by. And also because it was based on trailing EBITDA numbers that through COVID, if you're in the right industries, your trailing EBITDA numbers could be through the roof that are gonna stabilize, that there's going to be a correction in a sense in the market for that. Well, I mean, we're already seeing, we're certainly you know, heading into correction territory in the, in the public equity market at least. Yeah, money's definitely gonna get more expensive, you know, inflation's coming through, we have to pay the bills for all that money printing over the last couple of years, one wouldn't actually think. Is that really bad news? You know, looking back at the deals that were done over the last two years, searching for that yield, what kind of deals were done and were they sort of just going deeper into the capital structure of companies, which will now be overlevered, have too much leverage, and those funds are going to get stung because they've gone too deep into like, the risk and they're not going to, it was mispriced. I wish I could tell you how government's going to react in these situations, right? Because one of the key questions is going to be, is the rug just going to be pulled out or is it going to be eased out? And part of that is, is, is how is inflation going to play out. But if the expectation, and, and I think the market expectation, is that the rug is going to be eased out, and therefore there'll be a lot of money that just slowly trickles away. It's not going to be a drop-off. And so corrections will occur, but that's not distress. That's not bankruptcy filings. That's scaling back in the way in which your capital structure is currently stacked. Right? That on a go-forward basis, maybe 12x leverage is not a sustainable model. But it's not going to be 12 to 8 overnight. It's going to be let's ease back down. And so I think the interesting opportunity there will be how do you help companies ease back down? And, and what can you get as part of that? What's the state of the sort of documents these days from a lender's perspective? We have like all this talk of cover light of the years leading up to the pandemic. You had the J. Crew situation, which was kind of infamous where collateral could just be shifted out to another 
group essentially and, and all of the stuff that followed that which i think travel poor more recently and things like that how has the market reacted from a sort of documentary perspective over the last 12 months or so has, has that changed you know back in lenders favor or is it just there's too much liquidity and you just have to take what you can Unfortunately, I think the latter is the issue. There's just too much money chasing after limited opportunities. And so the documents are still very borrower friendly. Some of the big loopholes or areas where people didn't focus before, like the J. Crew kind of language has been closed, or at least lenders go in eyes wide open that that's a risk. But the documents are still very borrower friendly. How do we see that playing out over the next two years? I mean, that's that means less defaults, right? Because there's nothing to default on. <laughs> and, and by and large, lenders don't really care, right? Mm -hmm. If you're getting paid your coupon, you don't really want the keys to the company. You're okay writing it out. It goes back to my prior comment of if the rug is eased out, that's never going to be an issue because you'll be refinancing those with, with newer documents as you go forward. If the rug is yanked out, that's going to be a real problem because you won't get those early warnings. You won't get the time to come in and try and sort it out. By the time you can exercise your rights, your collateral is worth a lot less than you thought it was. And the private equity sponsor probably has it all anyway. So it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> Another topic that kind of came up in 2020 and, and 2021 for sure is ESG. And this has sort of got into every corner of the market now. Everything from ESG-focused companies getting capital more cheaply. You've got sort of ESG-linked loans at all levels, the expectation is that everyone has some form of ESG program and filter in place. How have you seen that affecting the market? Like, what are your thoughts? I don't think we know what it is yet, to be blunt. I think ESG is very much in its infancy, despite all of the focus it's gotten in the last few years. I think it's very much in its infancy and people are still trying to figure out what does it really mean how do you measure it? How do you compare companies on some sort of ESG scale? How do you think about it within your portfolio? I think there's a lot of growth needed in the industry as people think through that. I think the metrics that you measure ESG by, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of sort of controversy over that, right? In, the, in these sort of ESG linked loans, then the metrics are never disclosed. Like it's just, oh, it's ESG. So, you know, it, it must be good. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of slightly opaque at the moment, and I don't see any sort of standardization coming down the pike. There was actually an article in the FT this morning about the way that capital has become available to any company that has you know, strong ESG credentials. That naturally leads to over-leverage or overvaluing of those companies is kind of the theory. And a lot of hedge funds are now taking short positions with this strategy in mind that you know, over time, those companies might start to you know, struggle or be revalued based on what their actual, you know, profitability metrics are rather than whether they're wind farms. Is that something that you're seeing yet in the distress world as kind of something that people are focusing on like as an opportunity? I mean, it might be a win-win, right? Because, you know, if you're a distressed investor, ESG might actually be a happy hunting ground going forward. That's a hard one. It's a hard one because no one knows how it's going to shake out. The real question today is what is, who are the real ESG players, who are not, how do investors react to that? Today, it's very much a check-the-box exercise. Investors want ESG-linked notes. You tell me you're an ESG-linked note, check, done, put it in my, in my good bucket, move on. At some point, we're going to see a shakeout on that, where people say, well, that's not really true. What is your ESG credentials? How are you actually an ESG company? And it's so unclear how that's going to play out. 
But it's also unclear what investors are going to do with that. Does it mean that if, it, if a company is no longer ESG compliant, in your view, they have to sell out? Most people don't have strict limits on how much ESG assets they need to have in their portfolio. And so it, it's not like it's going to re- result in a forced sell if companies stop being able to comply with their ESG standards. I think one of the problems with ESG is that the economic pressure is kind of decoupled from the environmental considerations and social pressure. So you end up in a, you can end up in a situation where it's not necessarily true that a company that is ESG compliant is going to be more profitable, you know, no matter what the decks say, right? So you kind of have this sort of, you know, cake and eat it approach to things, you know, while things are going well, but then the economic pressure can sort of overwhelm a very sort of, you know, well-intentioned desire to invest in ESG companies. And what I worry about is that there'll be a kind of overreaction the other way. There's ESG-based portfolios that basically fall apart and end up being distressed and toxic. I think the question is, do consumers vote with their dollars or do they not? I think a great case study is Europe and non-GMO agribusinesses. And in Europe, people do vote with their dollars. So non-GMO businesses even though they were more expensive in their products than GMO businesses, were more profitable because consumers voted with their dollars. The thing that I think is unclear today is whether or not consumers are going to vote with their, with their spending dollars and make those ESG companies more profitable. Do you think we'll see more regulation in this area? I mean, it would make sense to regulate ESG disclosures and, and sort of bring a bit of clarity to it. I don't see that on the horizon. I mean, there are moves to it, like the SEC and the regulations of Europe. I think the interesting thing is actually, will accounting firms or other rating type agencies get into the business of providing some sort of rating scale? That would be an interesting play. If somebody could say, I have a rating scale and I'm literally going to rate every company on the same scale, and you could develop what that scale is, that could be really interesting. Because disclosure only goes so far when you really can't compare side by side how two companies are really performing on the same metrics. You asked about investors. I think as well as that, you need standardization of the ESG metrics, but you also need an acceptance. You might sacrifice economic returns in return for investing on a more ESG sustainable platform, right? And that's, I think, where the core of this problem lies, like the cake and eat it problem. But that's interesting, right? Because there are definitely investors who are willing to take a lower return to do good. As you think of certain sovereign investors, impact funds, there is that movement. The real question is, will consumers do it? And will individual retirees do it? Like if you were given a mutual fund, would you choose a mutual fund with a lower return because it was having a good social impact? If I were feeling charitable. But... So I'm- I think that's the case for our generation. I'm not so sure it's the case for the current generation. Current 20-year-olds have a little bit more of a social bent. That's an interesting point, but I guess we'll see over time. I like to think that, you know, following the money is always a good idea. And, you know, eventually <laughs> the economic reality will kind of bubble up to the surface and, and it'll all come out in the wash. But yeah, something to watch, I guess. On the S part of that, the social part, you, you know, most of your life, I think, have been a pretty sort of active campaigner for social justice on you know multiple fronts, right? Uh, you know, you are you're a person of color. You immigrated from Singapore. You're gay. Have I, have I missed anything? Bald. <laughs> you're bald. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Something we have in common. Yeah. Follically challenged is a underrepresented yeah, yeah. class. 
we'll come to that in a minute. Yeah, I've been fighting for those rights <laughs> <laughs> for the last 10 years as I've gradually descended into that <laughs> category. You're co-chair of Kirkland's Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Have you been in that role since you actually joined the firm in 2018 or did you just recently take that on? I took that a, a year after I joined the firm. Through 2020, 2021, you know, what was that like you know, being on that committee when presumably there was a lot of momentum behind it and you know, a lot of discussion around what the firm should be doing on that kind of stuff? It is very much a focus of the firm. The firm is very vested at all levels, right? From our management committee on down, we're very vested in increasing our diversity and inclusion. One of the key ways in which you really create a diverse workforce is by first starting by creating an inclusive workforce. Because you can hire to meet numbers, but if people don't feel like they're part of the firm, if they don't feel like they're part of the fabric, if they don't feel like they're part of the family, they're not gonna stay. They're not gonna vest into the enterprise just like you need them to. And so I think we've done a tremendous amount in creating a really inclusive environment. I think we're very focused on it and we're really focused on growing diversity organically as a result of that. What does it mean to have an inclusive environment? Like, is that just making sure you have more people of those categories around or is it, are there sort of proactive, practical things you can do? I think it comes to a few things, right? I think everybody needs to feel like they're an equal member of the firm. And that's a, that's a key requirement. If you feel like your voice is as loud as everybody else's voice at the table, you're more vested in, in the place you're at. And I think we're very focused on making sure that every voice is an equal voice in the table. That means everything from making sure your internal committees are properly staffed that way, making sure your pitches to clients represent your diversity or your target diversity, right? That you're giving people that voice because you have to give them that access to client development as well. Your staffing decisions are made with an eye towards diversity, right? And thinking through, are we doing this properly? Your promotion, your retention, your review, right? Every step of the way, you just have to think about it in a way that are you being inclusive? Are you giving everyone that equal voice? It's not something that you can say, check, done, because the moment you take your foot off the accelerator, you actually start sliding back. you got to keep the focus on it. Could we talk about LGBTQ rights and sort of equality specifically? We've seen sort of very positive societal shifts in over the last few years, right? You know, gay marriage has been legalized in most Western societies, at least. There's still obviously a lot of work to do elsewhere, including in your home country of Singapore. It has felt to me like there's been a huge positive momentum behind that. And certainly within the finance industry, I don't see any instances of, but maybe I'm blind to it. Like, where are we with that as, as an industry? You know, is that still an issue? Or is that something where we can just walk away and tick the box? The interesting thing about LGBTQ plus diversity is it is the silent minority in the sense that by and large, you can pick out other diversity factors when you look around a room you can't with LGBTQ+. And oftentimes, there is still very much a bias against it. I've been open since before going to law school, so everybody knows that I'm openly gay. But in general, in settings, no one ever comes up to me who doesn't know that I'm openly gay and says, what does your spouse do? What does your husband do? The first presumption is, what does your wife do? 
95% of the time, perfectly fine when I correct them and say, well, my husband actually is. But that first presumption is still to presume that you're not part of the LGBTQ plus community. And that leads a lot of practitioners, especially in the finance field, to feel like it's a choice every single time of do I out myself or do I not? I can't hide the fact that I'm a person of color. People will know that right away. Or bald. <laughs> uh, or bald. Uh, I can't hide that. <laughs> I actually, just a, a little uh, tangent. When we first went into lockdown and we went in the office for a few weeks, my very first Zoom call with uh, a client, I had this big blonde wig on. And I was like, this is my COVID impact. Didn't realize my hair would grow in blonde. <laughs> Did they ask to do um, just regular phone calls going forward after that? Yeah. I, I, I got I got the outcome I wanted. No more Zoom. <laughs> anyway, sorry. We, the choice. It's, it's, it's always a choice, right? So, so you're always thinking about, do I out myself? Do I not out myself? Is there going to be a bad impact if I out myself? That's what makes it difficult. So are there people who still choose not to out themselves? I mean, even in New York, even in Boston, even in San Francisco? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I know people at clients who are senior within private equity organizations who still, when they meet portfolio companies in particular, choose not to out themselves. It's a decision they're making as to how important is this person going to be to me personally? It's also a decision they're making of how detrimental or how much is it going to affect my relationship, my working relationship with this person if I do out myself. I think the damaging part is that it sends a message to anybody else in the group who is LGBTQ saying, oh, well, if the senior person is not outing themselves, I clearly shouldn't. And you're perpetuating that. But then equally, it's difficult to sort of tell that senior person, hey, you got to out yourself. That's a very difficult conversation to have. I mean, I, I would never force someone to discuss their sexuality for, you know, apropos of nothing in client meetings, right? It's a, it's a tricky one. It's 100% a personal decision. And that's what makes it tough. But I guess our job is to make a society where it really isn't a decision. It really doesn't matter. It's like, you know, it's something that people would, wouldn't feel under pressure to make a decision about. And one of the interesting things I think you see in the younger generation, too, is a lot of times they've moved to more generic terms. You don't talk about husband or wife. You talk about partner. You talk about family. You go to an anonymous setting where you can still have the conversations without having to either out yourself or not. Is this something where, you know, linguistically you're trying to impose these things on people or make changes like that? Because it's very hard. It is, and I think it should be just like outing yourself. It's a personal decision. And I think it's a personal decision for the straight white man as much as it's a personal decision for the transgender black woman. And you need to decide whether or not you want to put pronouns. I think, for example, the way we did it at Kirkland is we made it clear that it's totally acceptable and we put out a, if you do want to put your pronoun on your signature block, this is how you do it. But we did not impose it. We didn't tell people you had to do it because again, it's a personal decision and you get to make that personal decision on your own. So I think it is important for straight white men to do that too, to just say, I, I am also comfortable with pronouns, but it should be entirely personal. 
not being compulsory, but being something that naturally occurs is kind of the key here, right? Like, because otherwise you get that pushback. Agreed. And to be clear, I don't actually put my pronouns on my email signature block. And it was, it was just an intentional decision of, I've got so much information on my signature block already, I don't want to add one more. <laughs> what haven't I asked you that I should ask you about? What's going on? That's like the trick question they always ask you in, in your IRS audit. Like, what have, yeah, what have exactly. you not told us about? What, what have you been hiding? <laughs> uh, I don't know. This has been a great conversation. Um, yeah. I think, I think for both of us, the important message to the community in general, to the legal community in general is, there is life after being a general counsel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I used to say to people in private practice, there's life after big law, you know, there's, you know, come in house and everything will be fine. Like, uh, is this your last resting place? As you pointed out, I'm an old man, Richard. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is my last resting place. <laughs> in the residence in Stockholm, this is the, the final <laughs> chapter. <laughs> Let it not be true. I, I think there are many, many, many miles left in this run, and uh, I'd be surprised if it was. <laughs> well, I think, I think we all do something with our lives, right? We all want to give back. And the real flip is when that becomes a majority of your time versus right. a minority of your time. And I'm looking right. forward to that next chapter in my life. Are you still in, involved with the immigration justice charity? I, I think, is that, is that still going strong? Yep, immigration equality is a big organization we support, which has been very important in these last few years, especially under our last administration, providing support to immigrants has been really important. Because you actually, I mean, you came to the US as a as an asylum seeker, is that right? Well, or, or was that the, I, technically at least? No, I, I, that... I actually came to the US as a student, and then I had my citizenship taken away from me while I was here and therefore applied for status as an asylee six years after my citizenship was taken away in Singapore. You're Singaporean. So, oh, what? it was taken away. It was taken away. And I could not, I had no basis for applying to asylum, for asylum in the U.S. until 1998 when Janet Reno expanded the definition of protected classes to include social group. And that's where LGBTQ plus asylees came under. So I was one of the first few asylum uh, recipients under that category in 1998. So it's been an interesting path. If you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. But why did they take away your citizenship? That's a tricky and it's a long conversation. We, we, okay. we, 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 we. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to leave it at that. We're going to leave it at that. That's for the next, that's for part two. That's for part two. We'll talk about the, that story later. But uh, yeah, there's an interesting video on YouTube if you want to look at it. Okay, I'll check it out. Check what, it out. Of, of me. Okay, I'll, of you. Yes. Okay, well, we'll, yeah, okay. We'll include a link for anyone <laughs> listening as well. That was also uh, before I was follically challenged. So you get, a, you get a sense of my luscious hair pre. Unfortunately, this is audio only. So for obvious reasons. <laughs> as, as you, in, in the YouTube, you get to see. They could Google a recent photograph as well. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure they're out there. All right, Ranesh, thanks so much for joining me. This has been a fantastic conversation and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for taking the time. Mm -hmm.